Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. My, my, my. <laughs> Hello and welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom, and this is the show where we discuss all the things. All the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. Yes, people. Welcome to Saturday. Not that you weren't already in Saturday, yes. but for me, Saturday starts at six o'clock. <laughs> Let's get into our topic for tonight. Are Let's you ready? Do it. Yes. Okay, so. You and I always brainstorming topics, trying to think about, you know, what people want to know about. This was my topic. Yeah. yeah. So tell us tell us some thoughts about what we're talking about, why we're talking about it. So we are t- tonight we're talking about justice or injustice and looking at real life things that are unjust from our perspective um, and with biblical support that occur every day in society, but no one really blinks an eye at it. Yeah. One of the questions that I feel like we get so many times when we are on the road is this, well, how does it, how do you work this out practically? How do you do justice in regards to racial inequities? And my first comment is, well, do you have proof that there, that there are racial inequities or and racial um, disparities and things like that? Or are you going off of someone's feelings? Or that like, those disparities would, are unjust. Yes. That's the mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Um, and how are we defining one? How, how do we define injustice? How do we define justice? Mm-hmm. And then move forward from there. Is there a biblical warrant to say that this is a biblical injustice? Like the fact that there might be more white people in an organization than there are minorities, many would say is an injustice. We need to work toward diversity, equity, and inclusion. And my question is, is well, what's your warrant for saying that it's an injustice? Yeah, what's, what's the, the st- evidence? What's the standard? standard? And I think that in our effort to, you know, when we're on social media, we're always kind of pushing back against the critical social theories I think there can be a perception about you and I as a ministry that all we care about is just critiquing and mm-hmm. and pushing back against critical social theory and critical social justice, but that we don't want to be remiss in our efforts to clearly articulate the biblical case for biblical justice and a yeah. biblical standard. Mm-hmm. So we've each chosen, I think we chose, we each chose, we're supposed to choose. We're each supposed to choose three, three issues. Issues within society that we see as an injustice. A current injustice. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about historical injustices. We're talking yeah. about right now in the here and now. And this is not an exhaustively complete list. Mm-hmm. This is just six things yes. that we have picked between us, I pick three, you pick three. I actually only picked two. Oh, so you're already, already getting going for like a C minus in the class or what's happening here? Well, I just figured that mine are so good. It's oh. going to take a lot of time. And so okay. I just did two. All right, got no. it. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think I took a nap. I'm sorry. Well, I have three. I fulfilled the homework assignment. Yeah. So, um, but I think that this will be illustrative for people because... 
I think that you and I walk around thinking all the time, well, this is an injustice according to the Bible, but we don't hear people talking about it. Yes. So we're going to kind of bring some of those issues out in the forefront today. So, okay. All right. You want to go first? Yeah, I think I'm going to go first. And um, this is something that I think is really important. It'll kind of set the stage even for the discussion more broadly. And that is what I'm going to call the three-tiered justice system. Yes. Now, I have a question for you right off the bat before you even jump in. In looking at the three-tiered justice system, are you going to offer a biblical definition for what justice is mm-hmm. biblically? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Just yep. making sure you're on got, the right track, bro. I got receipts. Oh, goodness. Here I got go. biblical here receipts. Here we go. We might be here for a while. Y'all get your popcorn. <laughs> yeah. So I think that this is something, one of the reasons I picked this is because this is an issue that you've really helped me understand better. And I think that if you and I were to write a book on justice, I think that this would be like a whole chapter in the book. Okay. Of And it's just sort of a foundational issue. But I have to admit that I had no understanding or awareness of the different tiers of the justice system that have been faced historically by minorities. And, in, you know, in your experience in the black community... Mm specifically, I really had never thought about it. And when you and I first started having discussions, you were like, oh, yeah, well, justice is completely upside down. And there's one set of rules for black people. And there's one different set of rules for white people. I was like, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're even talking about. And I don't know that I would hold that position no. so strongly today. And we're going to talk about yes, some shifts I, I, on that. I want to put that in yeah. early so people don't don't start thinking yeah. like what? Da, 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 da. No, that was that was like five years ago when we first started having yeah. these conversations. Today, my thoughts have definitely shifted. Um, maybe not in all aspects because I do think that some parts of the justice system really do need to be looked at. But I definitely don't hold the yeah. position that you're referring to now. Right. So I'm glad for that clarification. Yeah. But. I think some principles of what you said are still true yeah. as I've examined it closer and thought about it in light of scripture. So um, the, what we mean, what I mean by a three-tiered justice system is really that there's just different sets of rules and punishments depending on who you are and what group you belong to. So top tier is, I would say, and this is, again, like if I were going to write a book chapter on this topic, this is roughly how I'd organize it is a top tier is the corporate and the political elite. This is like the tier one of justice. And um, this is when justice often is what they say, you know, there's a rush to play. Let's make a deal with corporate and political elite. Let's keep people out of jail. Let's make a deal. Um, Corporate bailouts for the rich. Mm -hmm. uh, Politicians avoiding jail time. Or their children. Or their children. We won't mention any names because... Just look forward and act like I didn't say nothing. Yeah. So, um, but this is the tier one justice, is that there is a standard of justice that if you belong to these certain classes of the rich, the powerful, the elite, the politically elite, the corporate elite, there is a different standard of justice for you than for the regular people. And I even would venture to say that I can see that across skin color lines. I agree. 
Yeah. And that's where I think that our thinking has evolved on this over the last few years yeah. is that it's not a racial divide. It's a wealth, poverty, power mm -hmm. divide. Class. Class divide. There, yeah. Okay. Did you get new glasses? No. Okay. Sorry. 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 A couple me. months ago. Sorry. Excuse me. It's very observant. Okay. All right. Sorry. Continuing. All right, so then we've got, that's the top tier. Then the middle tier, because normally you hear about like the two-tier system. I kind of have a three tiers. So the middle tier is, I would say, leniency and merciful prosecutions for certain people. So this is reserved for regular people, but maybe they have some degree of wealth and privilege, or maybe they, they belong to a particular class. And, but there's usually like this kind of rush to treat people in this tier with compassion and mercy. Historically speaking, this has been white people. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I'm going to put it out there as a thought experiment, that there's a shift currently happening toward minorities in this class, that there is this shift toward in the middle, the middle tier of leniency and merciful prosecution. Say more. Well, thinking about... And maybe this is a poverty um, division more than a racial division. But this idea of the critical justice theory of, you know, uh, normalizing theft and normalizing certain turning certain things that would be felonies into misdemeanors or we're not going to prosecute them because of historical injustices. So we're not going to prosecute we're going to have leniency and compassion mm -hmm. toward people in these particular racial categories or in these particular minority groups. Yeah, I think I don't know, do you think I'm way off on that? No, I don't think you're way off on that at all actually. I honestly do think that because of um like critical criminology and um, looking at criminals in certain lights and things like that, you do get this sense of well, if if they're a criminal, we don't want to marginalize them. And so there are certain um, ways in which the, ju the judicial system handles criminals. Now, I don't, it could be a class thing. So it would be interesting to look at whether or not, you know, in like certain parts of Tennessee or Appalachia where it's extreme poverty, if the criminals there also, you know, are, are, not getting off, but may be able to slide through on lesser sentences or things like that because they don't want to marginalize them? Or is that something where we don't want to marginalize criminals who are black and brown? Yeah. My honest thought is that it's probably the latter, where we don't want to criminalize those who are black and brown. I think historically, though, there could be a case that the kind of the this middle tier, second tier justice has, was slanted toward white people and this is where we get the idea of white privilege but i i think it's it it's an arguable point as to whether or not that's still the case yeah this reminds me this middle tier reminds me of the just mercy movie mm, yeah where in the south um you know there were all of these crimes that were being blamed on blacks even if um even if they were done by whites or if um 
a, there was a suspicion that a black person mm-hmm. committed a crime. They were arrested and not given due process and then ended up in jail for years, sometimes on truly erroneous, you know, yeah. or made up case cases. Yeah. So again, we're talking about the three-tier justice system. This is my number one of, you know, an injustice that's just sort of out there. And there's just different sets of rules and punishments depending on who you are. I said the top tier is the corporate and political elite. The middle tier is leniency and merciful prosecutions. I think that that currently is slanting towards certain minority groups. And then the bottom tier is what I would say is the poor and working class people. Now, historically, again, this I think has been black and brown people, maybe possibly some poor white people. But this, I think this level, this bottom tier can also include what is called predatory prosecution, mm-hmm. where the prosecutions are targeted toward a particular group. Going back to the just mercy example of, you know, we got to round up some black people. We got to target some black people. This is predatory prosecutions. Would you think that something like over-policing would be included in that? In the reading that I did, that's where they would put it is in this category of over-policing would be in the bottom tier. I don't don't know if I agree with that. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that either. So this is my spin on this. You know, I'm not saying I got this from a sociological textbook. I took the three-tiered idea Mm -hmm. from sociology, but then I'm looking at it in light of what I'm seeing, and I'm kind of tweaking it a little bit. Mm -hmm. But yes, sociologists put over-policing in this bottom tier. Yeah. And And they would say this is exclusively the problem of black and brown people. I don't think I buy that. I think that this is, this is people, I'm going to say something a little controversial. I think that Christians could end up being in this bottom tier Hmm. where there's predatory prosecution. I think we could be headed that way. Christian families, um, that have traditional values and traditional definitions of family, um, foster parents who are yeah. Christians could be targeted. I think that 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 could be part of this bottom tier. Okay. I don't know. Do you do you buy that? Do you think that there's could no? Be some- I definitely think that um, you know a targeted approach to um, how we persecute Christians could yeah. lead to that bottom tier thought process. Um, I don't necessarily agree with over-policing because over-policing is an entirely different conversation. That's all, all, yeah. um, You know, why I'm not putting that there. Yeah. yeah. All right. But I'm just saying if people go online and they look it up, that's where over-policing will be. So, all right, scriptures. Let's look at a few scriptures. I had Bob, I'm going to have Bob put them up on the screen here. We're just going to go through a very few number of verses starting in Exodus chapter 23. It says, you shall not spread a false report. So if we're going to have a biblical view of justice, it starts off with truth-telling. It starts off with not lying. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. In other words, you're not going to prop up criminals by lying on the stand. You shall not fall in with many to do evil. You shall not bear false witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. So if you want to know God's definition of perverting justice, it's lying. 
Um, that's a big part of it. You shall not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So we've got to weigh evidence truthfully, accurately, without partiality. All right, Bob, you can scroll down there. There should be some more scriptures. Continuing in Exodus 23, dropping down to verses 6 to 8, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in this lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. You shall take no bribes. This is the big one for me. I think that many aspects of our justice system are swimming in the problems of bribery or in one form or another. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. All right, scroll down a little bit more to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1, verse 17. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. Friends, this is really the foundation of not only biblical justice, but historically of our justice system. And that is of impartiality, weighing evidence truthfully, accurately, carefully, fairly, without partiality. If this goes away, then we are drifting away, not only from American justice, but from biblical justice. I've got, I asked Bob to um, put up um, an image here of Lady Justice, if you've ever seen this image. I want to explain this image to you so that you can really appreciate what it means um, from a biblical point of view and the tight connection between biblical justice and our justice system. So Lady Justice, if you notice, she's wearing a blindfold. Why does she wear a blindfold? And I want you to explain this to your children. It's because she weighs evidence on the scales impartially. She weighs it blindly. She doesn't give favoritism to the poor or the rich. So this three-tiered justice system is completely against God's standards, okay? If you've ever heard the expression of putting the thumb on the scale of justice, that is to weigh something in a weighted way, not an impartial way. It's to put the thumb on the scale there to weigh more heavily in favor of someone based on their class or maybe their race or what have you. I also want you to notice the sword in her hand. If we were to look up um, Romans chapter 13, we would read that God has appointed the government to wield the source of justice on his behalf, to be his servant or his deacon for justice. So Lady Liberty, I'm not Lady Liberty, Lady Justice, she weighs evidence blindly. This is what we ought to do because this is what God does. God is impartial. And so he wants us to be impartial. But then Lady Justice wields the sword to inflict punishments based on that evidence. It's a powerful symbol of our justice system with deep connections to scripture. Yeah. And I, when I see that symbol, it makes me think about just how far we are from that today. Mm. 
Yeah. You know, I kind of feel like Lady Liberty has her, not Lady Liberty, Lady Justice has her blindfold on, but then she's like playing peekaboo. Yeah. And then there's a thumb on the scale. Yeah. Yeah. Who's really before you? Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, And who does the sword really get um, wielded against? Yeah. And when is that, she not wielding the sword? The when the when the sword gets wielded against the bottom tier in a predatory prosecution, mm-hmm. that's unjust. Yeah, according to God's standards. And when you know the top tier don't receive the Ugh. due punishment for their crime, they are it, that is also unjust. That is also unjust. Yeah. So that's my number one. Okay. Uh, Bob, can you text Abby? I already did. Uh, my batteries. I already did. Oh, you already saw it? I already okay. did. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, yeah, it's up in the bedroom. Just, we have a computer that's dying. Don't yeah. worry, people. It's, it's our all, main one. It's all fine. Just, it's the one running the teleprompter. Don't worry. All don't right. Worry. So let's go. That was my number one. So let's go to your number one. My number one is payday loan places. Okay. And we talk about this whenever we travel. Um, Oh, yes. We're always like, oh, look, there's a payday loan place. Oh, what does that mean about the demographic of the community and things like that? They're always in communities. It's interesting. When we go to affluent areas... We don't see payday loan places, Mm -hmm. but we always know that we're in a lower economic area. There's laundromats, payday loan places, pawn shops. Now, I think the the affluent payday loan place is like the cash for gold. Oh, because Yeah, I mean... There, there are, like, I'm not saying that, you know, affluent communities are completely excluded from the need for a payday loan place. Like, you might have, you know, be down on your luck or something. I don't know. But, yeah, it's like the cash for gold places in, in the in the more sedity areas. Okay. Um, but I wanted to talk about payday loan places because I, I believe that they are predatory in their approach to the poor in their approach to humans in general, but they especially target the poor. And so what what we find is this exorbitant amount of payday loan places focused or centralized in areas of extreme poverty. Now, I didn't really know what a payday loan place was Mm -hmm. until I met you. So (laughs) maybe you should give us, give us a minute and, and tell us what exactly does a payday loan place do? What is it? How does it function? So a payday loan place, and I was, I'm going to actually open this link here and let's see here. So I'm going to read right off of Investopia and Investopedia. I may say that wrong. Um, A payday loan is a type of short-term borrowing where a lender will extend high interest credit base on your income. Its principal is typically a portion of your next paycheck. Payday loans charge high interest rates for short-term immediate credit. They are also called cash advance loans or check advance loans. And so what we need to know about a payday loan is that they are short-term, very high interest rates. Some interest rates are above 400%. And 
in looking at payday loans, oftentimes they don't tell you, well, this is how much interest you're paying. They kind of just roll it all into a fee. And so it can range anywhere from 10 to $30 based on the 100 per $100 that you borrow yourself. But they're looking forward to the check that you are set to get. So you're actually borrowing against that next check that you're going to get. And you okay. should be paying them back from that check. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, now that you're mentioning that, I think I actually worked at one of those places when I was in college. A payday loan place? Yeah. I didn't know that that's what it was. I, I had to... Okay, this makes me really old. I would type out on the typewriter fake checks that they would send to people to try to entice them to take out a loan against their next paycheck. Girl, that was Ed McMahon in the clearing house. No, no, no. No, it was was a thing. I think I did that as a temp job. Oh. Like when I was in college. No, this, maybe. I don't know. I've never... They wanted people to take out loans against their next paycheck. Oh. Like small loans. But it was a very fancy corporate thing. It wasn't in one of those little shops. Well, so... According to the research I've done... I want to say last year, payday, the payday loan industry made something upwards of like $22 million just off of the, the payday loan people. Wow. So it's, it's a lucrative industry yeah. and it is definitely an industry. Hmm. Let me go to the next, um, actually where are my little, let's see here. Um, when you think about payday loans, they tend to, one, target areas that are lower socioeconomically, but those areas also tend to be high minority. Okay. And so it can look like it's a prey on black and brown people, but in reality, it is a, not, it's not a target on black and brown. They'll take your money. They don't care, what color, they don't so care if, about the color. It's about the class and the poverty status. So the key word in that sentence is it can look like a racial disparity and racially racial targeting was really just targeting any ethnicity who's in poverty. Yeah. And when you think about the top four states that um, have payday loan places, mm-hmm. California is the number one, Texas ranks number two, and then Tennessee and Mississippi. Okay. And so California has Ooh, nearly 2,500 payday loan places with mm. nearly 80% of them being in the Southern California region, wow. especially within the Southern Los Angeles region. There's a payday loan place everywhere, sometimes next door to each other. Now, when I, I just mentioned this and I actually got the number wrong, how big is the payday loan market? The market size um, measured by revenue was $20.5 billion with a B. Oh, so not dollars, million. Not 20 million. $20.5 billion dollars wow. in 2022. And again, their audience is the poor. It's people who are strapped for cash. And how do they keep them? Paycheck to paycheck. Well, it's not even paycheck to paycheck. At some points, it's loan to loan because now I owe you. So I borrowed, you know, 200 bucks from you. Now I need to pay you back whatever that is plus the interest rate. So now I, because I can't afford that, in order to not have my wages garnished and have this sent over to a credit you know, uh, what do you call those things? Uh, um, 
like when, a credit bureau, not a credit bureau. What do you call those things when they have to go in? Um, oh, they confiscate a, your, your a stuff? collection agency. Okay. Yeah. So now I don't want it to go to a collection agency. So I'm going to go back to these people and they will incentivize this and say, you need to get another loan to pay off the first loan. So now all you're doing is rolling that debt into another loan with more interest. Now I've heard that interest rates at these payday loan places are often higher even than regular loans. Is is that true? Upwards of 400%. 400%? 400%. It is considered predatory lending because the um because the interest rates are so high. Let me actually I actually want to read the the correct yeah, Bob's going to put it it's, up here on the screen. Yeah, so here we are. So payday lenders charge very high levels of interest, as much as 780 in annual percentage rates, with an average loan running at nearly 400%. That's, that's insane. Most states have usury laws that limit interest charges to anywhere from 5 to 30%. So when you think of your credit card and you get that, um, you know, 0% interest or, you know, you get 0% interest for the first year and then it jumps to like 19% or something like that, which is crazy. At 19% of interest is crazy. We don't but really, when, we don't run balances on credit cards. No, I have no, no. idea what yeah, I just, those interest rates are. But when wow. you, I mean, I, I read the fine print. So <laughs> I don't, I like, I do the same thing. Like I don't run a balance on the card, but I'm going to definitely read all of the fine print wow. to see if I carried it over one month, what yeah. is the interest rate? It would be like sometimes 12%, 19%. Wow. And so between five and 30% is what's considered normal, not exorbitant. Okay, so usury rates means that it's just over the top. It's way too much interest. Way too much predatory, and it is preying on the poor, the most vulnerable, the most vulnerable in our society, and it keeps them poor. So it isn't like, oh, I got this loan and was able to, you know, help lift myself up out of poverty a little bit, or you know, I was able to open up a business and I can see this money going somewhere. This is, I got a loan to help make ends meet, but I keep my lights on. But at the end of the day, the gap is actually larger than if I would have never taken out the loan in the first place. This is an issue in America. This is an issue um, within, you know, states overall. Now, not every state. Um, There are 16 states in the union that actually ban. um, Oh, wow. They actually ban payday loan places. But for the other states that don't ban payday loan places, we must think about those that they are intentionally preying upon. And how can we as Christians use our voice and our vote and our dollar to say, you know, not in my neighborhood. I know that, you know, in the early 2000s, there was this whole NIMBY movement out here, not in my backyard. And it was regarding a bunch of other things. But how can we say that as believers, like, no, we're not going to allow this to come into our city because we know that people are going to actually be hurt by this. One of the things that um, that I started to think about was, what does the Bible say about lending to the poor and interest rates and things like that? Yeah. And um, hmm, that's interesting. In Proverbs 14.31, says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. And so what does it mean to oppress? What it, I think that's a key word in that, in that text. 
but when we look at the scriptures biblically, oppression of a person is to intentionally not allow them to one move forward yeah. to be able to grow in their like either in their industry or to be free um, from from usury from bribery to be able to live in accordance with the life that God has now called them to. There's some scriptures and I don't know them off the top of my head. I'm pretty sure they're in Exodus. But it might even be later in Exodus 23 that I was reading earlier. Mm -hmm. But it talks about if you do make a loan to, you know, your brother, a fellow Israelite in this context, I would put this in our context under the new covenant to a fellow Christian. You can't go to his house and take his donkey or something that is part of, I interpret it as something that, Helps him make a living. Yes. So in our context, I would say you can't take a poor person's car from them Mm -hmm. as collateral because they need that to go to work. Yes. You can't go in and let's say that the poor person has special tools Mm -hmm. that they use to. um, I'm just going to use a random example of like people that cut your lawn. Mm -hmm. They got a lot of tools to be able to cut their lawn. Mm -hmm. You can't take that poor man's tools away as collateral when you're collecting on a loan. Yeah. Because you're taking away their ability to make a living. And I think that this is something that in these predatory lending, it's almost like you're with 400% interest, you're really siphoning off their ability to, to recover. Yeah. And see, so for me, one of the things that I've had to think about is, well, what if these are people who are, um, not believers. So they're just in the culture. The, the culture's lending to the culture and the culture has no rules. What? How do we as believers then consider this? So as believers, we it says um, in the Old Testament that we, that Israelites weren't supposed to like charge interest to their fe- fellow brothers and especially to their poor brothers. You don't charge interest to your brothers. And so as Krista said, you know, when when we lend one, I'm under the, I live from the principle of, I shall lend and not borrow. So I'm going to, if I give, I'm just going to give, I don't even, it's a gift. Yeah. It's a gift. I don't even participate in the lending, but I think as Christians, we should be considering how do we treat the poor within our community? Are we ignoring some of their needs? And then Mm -hmm. now they feel like they have no other, um, resource or recourse, but to go to the payday lending place. But if you are also poor, you know, how are you making your needs known among your community? How do we come together as family to be able to take care of one another? But looking outside of the Christian sphere, I believe that as Americans, we have, what what is it that we have the, um, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit Pursuit of happiness? happiness. Yeah. Payday loan places negate all of that. There is no life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness when you're being charged upwards of 400% interest and you are already living at or below the poverty line. If you have to go and get a payday loan to keep your lights on or to feed your kids, and now they're asking you to take $300 out of your check that might only be $1,000 anyway to pay them back, you have to... Think about how, how, how am I supposed to be able to live with 
without the burden of now owing someone. And yeah, I can look at that person's free autonomy. They didn't have to go there, but it's made so easy. So when you think of a payday loan place, you don't have to have collateral. My credit could be shot to... Tim Buck too. It can be a mess. And they're not going to ask me for what is your credit score. They're only going to ask me, do you have income? What's your income? And in some places, they don't even ask for your income. But some of them attach it to the title of your car, which seems clearly unbiblical to me. But again, this is the culture. And so I don't know that I can, I can attach yeah. those standards I- to them. But like if I if we were at church and the church gave out a loan and then he was like, well, let me get let me get a piece of your car for this thirty dollars. I'd be like, no, that's wrong. But in the culture, I can't go. I don't feel like I have jurisdiction or warrant, as Paul would say, to say, well, you shouldn't be like, according to my Christian beliefs. Sure. But you don't uphold that if you're a pagan. But historically, I think, you know, we could look at and this is the great tension that we live in is how do we change hearts through the gospel that predatory lending goes against God's principles so that people don't open these places, you know, and the church offers an alternative. There's a great documentary and I wish I knew the name of it and I'll try to put it in the comments later after the show, but there's a great documentary about a church in Texas that I saw a number of years ago that what they're trying to do in their community that they they live in an area in their city where there's a lot of these payday loan places in the near vicinity of mm-hmm. the church. And so what they're doing is trying to be an alternative to these payday loan places and restructure the culture and do some things to help people understand. Don't make this decision. Yes. Don't, don't do this. And so they help them out with micro loans, but they do more than just loan them money. They, help them with financial literacy and re-education and a lot of other tools. And where does this money go? Helping them start businesses. And, you know, so it's not just falling down a hole to keep the lights on. Yeah. So, and I, I mean, the church has got to, I think the think church about, the church should things. be thinking about this. I think the church should be thinking about this first within their own community. I, and this might be a controversial statement and that's okay. I'm here for it. Um, I don't know that the church should be running to those in the community to get all their finances right when the people in your own community don't have lights or are living paycheck to paycheck in the church, in the church, in in your church. How are you working as leaders within the church to make sure that the people, your congregation are financially literate and working toward the betterment of themselves in regards to their finances. When your church is okay, then I would say definitely we, we now we extend this out to the community because we have a solid plan in place yeah. to be able to help someone else. You got to put on your own oxygen mask first, friends. Yeah. That's not necessarily a popular word, but I would say you help your family. I think the biblical precedent is your family, your church community, and then those who are not a part of the community of faith. And so kind of in the spirit of Galatians 610, you know, uh, do good to all, especially in the household of faith. Yeah. First, you know, prioritize mm-hmm. it. Okay. We got to go faster. Say it's 615. Yeah. It's what? Or 645. 
Yeah, we probably ain't gonna get through all six. We, Let's we just gotta, be honest. We gotta faster. Okay. Um, but yeah, so when it comes to predatory lending, I would say that one, we should use our voice, our vote, and our dollar because we are Christian to speak out against things that hurt image bearers. So I'm not speaking out simply because they are hurting other Christians, but they are hurting people created in God's image based on this our our biblical standards. We understand that this hurts the image bearer. This keeps a person in poverty. This does not elevate a person out of poverty. And then I would say that as believers, we should be doing our best to be financially sound, financially literate, especially within our families and then within our faith communities, and then sharing that with the broader culture. So Natalie has a related question here. She says, "There are so many comments I didn't even know." Yeah. Um, Sorry, friends. Let's see. Natalie wants to know, why aren't payday loan places considered usury? They fall under special laws. Is Yeah, somebody's answer, because they are written within the confines mm-hmm. of the law. Yeah. 400% interest is within the confines. It is. Of, it's it, a little scary. It is within the confines of yeah. the law. Um, and there now there have been pushes for things like underwriting payday loans and under one recent president, no longer the president, one recent president's administration, he didn't want to go down that path. And so the whole underwriting of, um, of payday loans is not a thing. It's not required. And that underwriting would consist of, can you actually pay back this loan? That is something that people have fought for it would be a great idea to have you know a conversation of do you actually think you can pay back this loan kind of like we do with home mortgages yeah you know can you pay it back can you pay kind of like i would do if i had a kid look you want to borrow five dollars to get this bubble gum <laughs> can you pay that back like we need to have real common sense conversations what they have started to do is allow the borrower um to to uh let's see, how do I want to say this? They started to advise the borrower when they are going to debit their account. So let's say I missed my payday loan payment, my repayment, and now they're just gonna go into my bank account if that's how it was set up, and I wasn't gonna pay cash, you know. And I, I don't I don't actually think you have to have a bank account, but if you do have a bank account and they're gonna go now and debit your bank account, they have to give you warning that they are going to go and debit your account. And they can only attempt to debit your account twice and no more. So if if they can't get it on those first two tries, then at that point, um, they are just out of luck, but then they can go the collections route. So my number two is eminent domain. My number two injustice is eminent domain. So this is where the government seizes property. And so I'm going to have Bob put up an official definition of eminent domain from HUD, which is the housing of urban development here in the United States. This is on an official government website. Eminent domain is an exercise of the power of government, or I love this part of the definition, quasi-government agencies such as airport authorities, highway commissions, community development agencies, and utility companies to take private property for public use. Sometimes these entities may propose to use their eminent domain authority to take public housing property as well. So this is when the government or government-adjacent entities seize private Property. What's a government adjacent entity? Well, that was what I just read. 
Were you, all right, Bob, I know. I'm asking the question. Airport authorities, highway commissions, community development agencies, and utility companies. I missed it. Sorry for. I know you weren't paying attention. You were looking down there. <laughs> well, I was reading the comments. I know. Sorry. So I that's just... what government adjacent authorities are. So there was a story, and I couldn't find it back. This is what prompted this: is I saw a story recently, and I, I think it was in the L.A. Times. It might be behind a paywall or something. But they had a story about some homes that had been seized 60 years ago out in Pasadena. And they were seized for the, allegedly, for the purpose of freeway development. Mm -hmm. They never did anything with them. Oh, I know someone who... um, They threw all those people out. Uh Uh So what they do is if they just decide, we want this house, this property for xyz thing that is in the public interest yes and that can be very loosely Mm -hmm. defined they can just come in and take your property so a friend of mine had her house seized under eminent domain because they were building a new police station they needed her home her home set on this track of homes on this one main road. It was a busy street that she lived on. Um, And so it wasn't just her house, but they took this row of homes and did nothing with those homes. They built the police station. They used one home out of the however many that they took. They used one home. They knocked that that home down in the police station that does actually you know, part of it is on that land. But then the homes next to it were all knocked down eventually, years later, were all knocked down. And this is probably... 15 or so, 15, 20 years ago now. Um, And in having knocked down those homes, they built, they sold the land and then built condos on it. So the government was sort of acting as a property development entity. Mm -hmm. And so what do they do when they kick people out of their homes? Do they pay them a pittance? Do they just relocate them or give them an opportunity for relocation to a government selected area? Like, how does that work? In her case, I'm not sure. She was actually my friend's mother. Okay. Um, And so I wouldn't have had like those conversations with her. When I think about out, so out in South Central LA, there was an entire government housing place, like a, um, like a project. Project. Yeah. So there was the projects. And I mean, we have multiple projects in LA or quite a few. And um, they, in this one project, if you still wanted to continue with your Section 8 housing, you had to be relocated. So you went from living in South Central L.A., which isn't the best place, but, I mean, it's still they L.A. They to Rialto or Rialto. something. Rialto. Rialto's like the boondocks. Like, don't nobody <laughs> want to live in Rialto? And if you do live in Rialto, I'm sorry, but, I mean, let's come on now. You know. Or, you know, Paris. Not Paris with an A. Paris with an E. <laughs> it's out in the desert here in Southern California, Victorville. I know Vic- that they moved a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, they moved a lot of people to Victorville and things yeah. like that. And so it's kind of just moving the problem to another area. And then I can take this land and sell it. And you see a lot, the, you see the developers. start of gentrification and things like that, or I what see. people would call gentrification. So scripturally, here's a few passages for us to consider. Um, obviously, the basic passage is Exodus chapter 20. Uh, the Ten Commandments, you shall not steal. This is really a government-endorsed theft issue. You, all right, you can scroll down. I think there's another verse down there. No, all right, go to the next link. Um, there's a bunch of verses in the law about theft, 
But what I like to point out is this practical application in 1 Kings 21. And we won't have time to read all of this, but I encourage you. It's a great example of what I think is like a biblical version of eminent domain. So King Ahab sees that Naboth has a vineyard. He has some property near the castle and he wants that property. And so he tries to buy it from him. But Naboth says, no, this is the land of my ancestors. Um, And if we were to read through Exodus and, and Leviticus and Numbers, we would read how God had portioned out land to each family and clan and and the the year of jubilee that land can revert back to that family so that the family constantly has a way of making a living and supporting themselves so Naboth says no I am not going to sell the land of my ancestors this is the land given to me by God himself okay and so then scroll down and then Jezebel comes along and then Ahab's sulking about it And so Jezebel says, okay, I'll take care of it for you. So she um, sends out letters in Ahab's name, basically seizing the property from Naboth and uh, taking him out to be stoned. So since he wouldn't sell the land, now he's going to get killed. This is like the ultimate imminent domain theft of property. And the entire idea of having property is a critical part of God's law. There's a reason why one of the Ten Commandments is you shall not steal. The idea of private property is not just a nice idea in American capitalism. It is a foundational idea in God's sense of justice. And to to steal someone else's property, whether it's their donkey, which helps them earn a living. In our case, car theft. I, I think that's a kind of a transcultural equivalent. Um, to steal someone's home, to steal someone's property, is to go against God's justice standard. So that's my number two. Okay. You have any thoughts about that? I do. Okay. Um, I feel like it would take us down a rabbit trail. Oh. That we don't really need to go down. Okay. Yeah, because I, I, I mean, when okay, so eminent domain would be stealing land. Like, is is eminent domain ever necessary or good? Let me say that. Yes. I I mean, I, anything's possible, but I think that there's enough examples that a large part of the practice is very corrupt, and so I think that maybe. You know, if there was a situation where a just price was paid, where there was a coercion in the person selling their mm-hmm. land, if they were given a reasonable value on the property that's commensurate with um, wider standards, yeah. you know, I think that that could be, you know, a case. But if you're seizing land, I don't to know. To condos. Yeah, it, it's it's a tough issue. And and. Um, you know, the, the, but the whole thing about private property is it, it, it is a important part of scripture. 
There's another whole rabbit trail we can go down. That's about, the rabbit trail that about I was going to go down. Land that is the exact and one. All of that, but we'll save That's that. That's a con- rabbit trail for another day. We'll talk about that another day. We, I really think we are twins. A theology of land. Yes. Yeah. My second one is welfare. And I am just super passionate about the idea of welfare and welfare reform. Um, I I teeter back and forth between like, should we just like get rid of it all? And, you know, does it serve any place of good within our society? What what does that look like? But when um, when I was thinking about the the idea of injustice, I immediately thought about abortion. And so I was going to do the whole abortion thing. And that was going to be my second one. But I was like, we've talked about abortion so much and people are talking about abortion. I don't know that many people are really talking broadly about the injustice of welfare and how welfare keeps people trapped in a system and what it's done to many communities in regards to fatherlessness and single motherhood. And I'm not just talking within the black community. The The idea of welfare, um, one started out with the idea that you can't have a man in the home. This this is going to come in to help subsidize single mothers and, and families who can't make it and things like that. But that um, it, intentionally or inadvertently took men out of the home. And it doesn't matter what community you're in. When you have high rates of welfare, you generally see high rates of single motherhood. And so the first thing that I want to go to is um, welfare within California and the welfare to work program. And so many, yeah, you can do that one. Um, I want to read just a bit of the top part of it. It says, just as Republicans in Congress are moving up to beef or moving to beef up work requirements for people who receive welfare, California lawmakers are moving to do the opposite. Of course, it's California included in a recent state assembly budget proposal and in a bill, the assembly passed on Wednesday. And this is back from June of this year um, is a plan to remake Cal works the state's federally funded cash welfare program that requires recipients to work or search for jobs using a list of approved activities. And so what they're referring to is the Cal Works program, program, and I believe that there this is a similar program in other states. But if you receive welfare, one, there are only a certain amount of children that you can have on your cash aid benefit portion. You can have as many children as as you yourself have or take care of in your home that can receive food stamps. So the food stamps, you can put a lot more people on food stamps, but when it comes to cash aid, they are specifically looking um, not to give you cash for like every child. But so if I had two children and at one point, I'm not sure because I haven't been in social service in a minute, but um, at one point it was two children. And then if I had a third child, then I was just kind of SOL sort out of luck. Like they would only give me cash for those two children. So if I have, God forbid, let's say I have two children, I've maxed out my welfare benefit. That's how it was at one point in the state of California. If I were to have a third child, if I were to conceive of a third child, it almost seems like there's a little bit of a silent incentive to abort that child, potentially, because I'm not going to get more money to support that child. So then you get in this whole trap conversation of, well, you don't want to have a child born into poverty. And so let's just abort it. That would be Margaret Sanger's approach. We're not going to go down that path because we only have a few minutes left, but yes, that is one of the the thoughts behind it. Um, 
But in order to have CalWORKs or a cash aid benefit, um, and like it's not general relief, which is a different side of welfare. Um, but like if you are a, a single mother and you you have um, welfare, there is a requirement that you either um, that you are looking for work and that you are actively, you know, going out, putting in your resume. You have to send over your list of places that you've gone to, to your social service worker. You need to be, you know, taking resume writing classes and doing all of those kind of things. And so. What Republicans want to do in Congress is um, beef up this requirement. In California, what people want to do is extend or um, offer more leniency. So instead of, you know, looking for work, I might be working on my mental health. I might be taking this class over here. I might be doing a lot of things that are not necessarily related to work. It just seems like, though, when people get on welfare, a lot of times, not all, but a lot of times, their quality of life actually goes down. Well, this is the- why this is why I say I call it an injustice that I don't think people are talking about, because people don't realize what happens when when people begin to receive handouts that they don't have to. You don't have to do anything. You have to work for it or things like that. And if you are on welfare, this isn't uh, a down on necessarily you specifically, but this is to really investigate the system and how is the system helping people who might be taking advantage of this system, able-bodied people who might be able to work. And so California wants to say, you know, instead of having this work component and it's called CalWORKs, maybe we could extend this so that people who are receiving cash benefits can, you know, take this class over here or work on their mental health or they can do this thing over there. Eventually what happens is that a person can get used to receiving that aid and not doing anything in return for it. And so to your point of it seems like their quality of life goes down, I honestly believe that it is because humans were meant to work. It's part of God's created order that we would go out, that we would um, work. And I know like in Genesis, it says that you would till the land, that you would you know go out and do these things. But it's that we are active with our bodies and that we are not meant to you know, just receive without work, work and compensation, you know, forever have been tied hand in hand. Yeah. Work and, and, I always say work and money go together. Work and money go when, to, when work you, and food go together. You know what you I mean? Separate those things out. You go against the created order and things can really go wrong. I, I just see lack of work is a, not just a physical problem. It's a soul problem. It is. And so I completely see it as an injustice that people aren't talking about. When I, when I thought about scripture for it, um, I, the one that came to my mind was um, in Ephesians 4 at the end where Paul is encouraging those to work so that mm-hmm. you may have something to share with those who are in need. And and also Genesis, where, you know, I tend to say that Adam had a job before he had Eve, you know, like that work has been since the beginning. How are we considering work? And when we aren't considering work and when we aren't using our voice, our vote and our dollar to vote for people, even locally and at state levels who have um, ideas and ideologies about work that are in line with scripture, what then are we doing to the image bearer? who is receiving the cash aid without um, 
any kind of tie to work for it. Yeah, and I think what you mean is when their vision is not in alignment yeah. with scripture. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So no, I totally agree. And I think that it's an injustice because it it really does harm people's souls. It's it 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 sends the wrong message. <clears throat> and um yeah, it's it's a tough issue. I I did a teaching recently on my channel about discipling our children when it comes to work. So that would be a good kind of follow up to this discussion. I don't think people are aware um, of how many people are on welfare. California, um, I think still today, leads the pact in in all of the 50 states in regards. Maybe Alaska might be first, but it, it's kind of, I think, between Alaska and California and how many people are on welfare, how many people are um, receiving food stamps. And, um, yeah, so when we look at... This and this is only food stamps. It's SNAP. It is Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program. I believe is what SNAP stands for. In California, there's 1.9 million. In Florida, there's 1.6. And so you can see the list. There is also a cash aid graph um, that I saw there. And when, if I remember correctly, I believe that it is California that leads the 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 union and how many people we have on cash aid. I remember when I was in, and this is just a tangent, my last thing that I'll say, but I remember when I was first starting to study sociology, it was my sociology 101 class, and I did a report on welfare. And in many of the states at the time, and this was no this was probably like the year 2000, 2001, um many of the states the amount of money that you could receive on welfare was double the minimum wage rate. It's a little de-incentivizing. It was de-incentivizing to work. Now, since then, there have been welfare reforms and, you know, shifts in welfare, I'll say that. So I don't know if that's true. I haven't dug that deep into it. But the idea of work is deeply connected to scripture. And we have to think about, um, you know, how do we, how do we assist people you know, I would never, I don't want to, I never want to be so rude as to just be like, well, they on welfare, just kick them off. Like, I don't think that that's helpful. The but best- I also don't think that strict handouts are helpful either. And I agree with yeah. that. But I think that there has to be a well thought out way in which we remember that the person who has been receiving these benefits yeah. for 10 years is still an image bearer. Yeah. They're still going to need to eat at the end of the day. Yeah. And to a degree, we have to recognize that we've dug ourselves into this pit. And we've trained people to think a certain kind of yeah. way that's very harmful to them. So it's going to take some time and effort and patience to retrain, redisciple, yeah. all of that. So, all right, really quickly, my number three was human trafficking. Um, the Bible condemns man snatching both in the Old and New Testament. And we're going to have some content coming up in the next few weeks related to human trafficking. So we'll cover that in detail. Then your number three was? I was kind of in between abortion and prostitution. Okay. Um, I have had a couple of conversations this week and did a webinar. I, I attended a webinar on prostitution and just how... Which is sort of related to human trafficking. Yeah, and so yeah. when I saw that, I was like, oh, maybe I should do abortion. Um, and I wasn't doing abortion sp- specifically like the act. I was doing Planned Parenthood's um, well-thought-out plan of putting abortion 
location specifically in um, black and brown communities, not even, and this I'm not saying it's like on a class line of, you know, they're, they're in the poor communities. It is, it looks more, um, more at who are the black and brown and where are the black and brown communities. And if they are not specifically within a black and brown community, they are usually within walking distance to a black and brown community. Very and good. So, yeah, so, that was it. and I know you're going to have some content coming soon on off code, on yeah. off code related to that. Um, so those are our, each of our three. Again, this is not an exhaustively complete list, but these are some of the things that Monique and I talk about from time to time as we're on the road and making observations. And again, the spirit behind all of this is we don't want to be known as Christians as simply people who tear down the critical social theories. As much as we need to come against godless frameworks, I'm all for it. I'm here for it. But we also have to make sure that we're having a good amount of energy making our case for biblical injustices and biblical justices. Mm -hmm. That could be another show. Yeah. Um, To really define our terms, to understand what qualifies as a justice or injustice. Hopefully we've spurred your thinking a little bit along these lines. Awesome. Okay. You ready for... Let's do it. The the tweet. The video. I didn't know it was a tweet. Okay. Yeah. We can just um, pull up the, the video. Huh? Oh, yeah. Let's play the ad. And we'll be right back with the tweet of the week. It's time to prepare. Let's get ready for the journey ahead. Life doesn't give us a redo. We don't get to run it back. Along the way, we will face obstacles and challenges, but we are carrying light into the dark places. Our paths and our destinations are different, but our beginning is the same. We must prepare. This is why Impact 360 Institute exists. Get ready to grow, to stand firm, to be who God created you to be, to lead with courage, truth, and love. This experience will transform your life. Be challenged to grow your faith. Learn how to think, not what to think. Build community with those seeking to live like Jesus. Establish spiritual rhythms, discover how to be, and make disciples. And put your faith into action. As you prepare for the journey ahead, deepen your understanding of what God has revealed about reality and why Christianity is true. Discover your identity in Christ and your God-given calling and authentic community. Cultivate a servant's heart and live a life of spirit-empowered kingdom influence. Make sure to check out our friends at Impact 360 at impact360.org and consider sending your child to either a one-week, two-week, or nine-month gap year program where they get um, a deep training on their biblical worldview. Also, since we're talking about biblical worldviews, not sure if you've heard, but 
Dr. Joe Miller, he's been on our show a few times and he sits on our, on the Academic Advisory Council for the Center for Biblical Unity. He and I are going to do a six-week worldview live stream. And so once a week, we're going to hop on and just talk about worldviews. We're going to be going through James Sire's book, The Universe Next Door. And you can check out the Center for Biblical Unity for more information on that. We're going to start marketing on that this week and let you know the time and all of that. You'll also see videos from Dr. Joe Miller on um, Worldview. He's created a whole series of Worldview videos. So we just want to start the conversation. The book, The The Universe Next Door, has been a super impactful book in my life. And so I want to share that with others. Cool. All right. Now, in the news this week, I see many crazy things on Twitter, which now I can't even call it the Tweet of the Week anymore because Twitter doesn't exist anymore. Now it's X, and I don't know what we're going to do about that. But there was a great video this week. A young man had a patch on his backpack, went to his school. He's, he goes to a charter school, which is technically a public school. Um, but he is 12 years old. He's a middle schooler. Shows up with a backpack. He's got a lot of patches on his backpack. He's running for vice president of his student class and all of this. Well, one of his patches is the Gadsden, Gadsden flag. The Gadsden flag is the one that says, don't tread on me. It's the yellow one with the serpent. It says, don't tread on me. So we're going to see what happens when he gets called into the principal's office, he and his mother, to talk about this patch that apparently is a problem for the school. Do they know what the Gadsden flag is? That it's a historical flag. So they're, um, the reason that they do not want the flag, the reason we do not want the flag displayed, mm -hmm. is due to its origins with the slavery and slave trade. That is what was, um, that's the reasoning behind why we do not want to display The Gadsden flag. The don't tread on me. Okay. Which is the Gatsby book. Okay. Um, okay. So he, he, um, he's, what's going to happen if he doesn't take it off? He, I mean, he is able to go. I was actually just telling him, like, I was upset that he was missing so much school. I'm like, ah. So I asked if, can he just take his stuff out of his bag and go back to class? Like, I just want him to go back to class. The bag can't go back. It's got patch on it because we can't have that in and around other kids. So that's what I was trying. And then he said you were close. So I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, it has nothing to do with slavery. That's like the Revolutionary War patch that was okay. displayed when they were fighting the British. Like, that wasn't, that's the revolution. Maybe you're thinking of like the, um, the Confederate, our Confederate flag. <laughs> okay, I, so I am here to enforce the policy that was provided okay. by the district. Okay. And definitely, you have every right to not agree with it. I mean, yeah, because yeah, the ACLU says that he's allowed to wear that. If you like, go on their website, it like says in big so letters. I, all, all I'm saying is that unless there's like a ban on patches, period. Like if you said there's no patches allowed at the school, you cannot display what you think or anything like that, or what cheer or anything like that. Um, I, I don't. I think it's like one-sided, you know, because. You allow some patches, but not other, other patches. Other kids have patches, like other names, and like 
Asian American flag on that text. Yeah. That was like flown during the revolution with, um, yeah, I, I just don't understand that at all. So what I can do is if you go on to the ACLU's website, yeah, let's let's talk to someone. I can, I I can have you speak to I can have you speak to Jeff Yoakum again, Um, and then he can refer you to our person at the district. Okay. Um, Because, like I said, we're following district policy is what we're doing. So. The last thing I want is him out of class. Yeah, I know that's he all should. He, I, he the takes his classes seriously. Yes. He studies. He does, he wants to get straight A's. He did that. He made honorable when he was here before. Yep. He intends to do that again right now, but it's hard because he keeps missing class for this. So I understand that. Yeah, and I mean, we teach him to always stick up for your beliefs. And I mean, you're going over the revolution this for seventh grade. I mean, the founding fathers stood up for what they believed in against unjust laws. This is unjust. Okay, I, like I said, we are upholding a policy that was provided to us, which we have to uphold. Okay, can you show me? So I had Bob play the whole thing because um, many of the news outlets are only playing clips. I'm always one for context, but I have a couple of observations I want to make. But first of all, from you, that's the first time you've seen the whole thing. What are your thoughts? I mean, first of all, that little baby foot was cute. Um, <laughs> I think and, the mom was hiding the camera in the yeah. stroller. I mean, good for that mom for standing up for her kid and not taking that. No, we're not taking the patch off. If you have all these other. I'm sure know, if there was a pride flag. It would, and I am sure there probably is a pride flag flying in one of their classrooms somewhere. Um, but again, it's we don't play by partiality. And I'm not going to have my kid, you know, treated poorly or oddly or seen to be the the one that gets to get picked on because he has a more quote-unquote conservative sticker on his backpack you can get over it yeah i thought it was interesting that the the governor of colorado which this kid goes to school in colorado springs uh-huh. and um the governor of colorado who is a democrat tweeted out to him that he was behind the kid yeah and he, he supported the kid um and uh, a very liberal uh, person in the California Senate, Ted Lieu, mm-hmm. who is behind a lot of those gender bills mm-hmm. that we're always complaining about. He also support. He also tweeted out he was supporting the kid with the Gadsden flag. Yeah. And and I just thought oh, this is so interesting because the the thought line is well he can't have this flag on his backpack because it's connected to slavery. The teacher seemed, or the principal, whoever that school administrator was, didn't seem like she really knew. She seemed uneducated. Yeah, what the Gadsden flag was even yeah. about. Yeah. And yet it was objectionable. And slavery. Yeah. Like, we're just going to use the word trigger word slavery and then these people are going to cave. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just glad that the mother stood by her kid and was like, hey, look, we can have a civil conversation about this, but... Not today and not on my watch. We're not just going to bow because you have these woke policies or or this, you know, liberal leftist agenda and ideology and expect that my kid has to participate with it when you guys play by these same rules. And in reality, it's not that um, he's breaking any rule. It's just that you don't like what he has on his backpack. Yeah, I think that's really why I wanted to play the clip is the mom. The mom... 
We get so many letters at the ministry, particularly from moms, almost always from moms, saying, how can I have this XYZ hard conversation with a school administrator and have it not ruffle any feathers? And you and I are always saying, that's the wrong goal. Ruffle the feathers. I'm here for a feather fight. Go ahead. That's not the right goal. And I think this mom is a great example, and I'm putting it out there to all the moms, of like, go have the harder conversation. Don't be afraid. Know your facts. Bring facts. Stay calm. Um, But please be courageous. We can, if, if, unless we push back against these ideas, we will be overrun by them. And I think this mom provides a great example. It's not just the principle that she stood up for her kid. It's that she stood up against the ideology that is trying to run all of us over. Yeah. And I think we've got to do more. We need more courage. This is a great example of courage. But if you make the goal, how do I have the conversation without ruffling any feathers? That's not the right goal. You've got to to get strong in yourself and to know how to tackle these things and have the harder conversation. Future has some good comments. Um, says, please let me see the district policy where it exactly. says no gas, then flag. That would have been Patch- my first yeah. question. Yeah. Let me see it. She kept, the administrator kept saying, well, this is our policy. This is our policy. Yeah. Show me the policy. Yeah, because I'm sure you had to have a policy book. Yeah. yeah. Where is this policy? Yeah. Then, that would have been my first question. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just. The, Monique's the about was, to stuff a pillow with all the feathers. Don't play no games. <laughs> I'm here for the feather fight. All right, you guys, it has been a great evening to hang out with all of you. Thank you so much for joining us as we talk about injustice. We will see you again in, I believe, two weeks. We are on the road next week. We are in the Dallas area for the Maven Conference. Yes. So if you're going to the Maven Conference in the Dallas area, come see us. And we'll see you in two weeks. Go to mavenconferences.leavis.com. Yeah. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.